This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Nadia Shadlow, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. She previously served as the U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy during the Trump administration. In that position, she was the primary author of the landmark 2017 National Security Strategy. Given the Biden administration's publication of their own national security strategy last month, Roger and Nadia assessed the new strategy and compared the Trump administration's approach with the Biden administration's approach. Dr. Nadia Shadlow, welcome to the show. Hi, Roger. It's great to be here this afternoon. Well, you, besides being a great friend of the Reagan Institute, you are a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute nearby here in Washington, D.C., and previously served during the Trump administration as U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy, which sounds important and is important in particular because you were the primary drafter, primary author of the 2017 National Security Strategy. Nadia, tell our listeners and viewers, what is a national security strategy and why should we care about it? Thanks, Roger. Well, importance is always pretty relative, right? So I guess the jobs like that are important if you think, uh, you know, writing down a lot of words on paper, delivering it's important. They're probably actual doctors um, that, that do different things, save lives. But I do think strategies in the policy world um, are important and not, not just for the policy world, right? Strategies are an opportunity for leaders um, as well as constituents to sort of bring together their views in one place, right? The job of, of policymakers and, and leaders that are elected to office are to tap into the constituents, tap into the electorate, uh, into the ideas that are out there and bring them together um, into one place to start to build the coalitions that are needed to actually implement changes. So I'm not sure if that's too academic, but I see strategies as a way to get people around a table to discuss important topics, to write them down, to articulate the challenges and opportunities we have as a country, and then to help to begin to lay a groundwork for necessary changes. So Nadia, just headline. If you had to say that, share what the headline was for the national security strategy you wrote in 2017, the contribution it made perhaps in a, in a way that really seized the moment we were in or departed from previous strategies or an element that lasts through from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, what would that headline be? Um, I might have a couple headlines. One would be, what are the steps that we need to do to preserve American advantages, to make sure that we're not disadvantaged well into the future, to preserve our strengths? Another headline is, the world is a competitive place. Uh, we need to improve our game, uh, understand that it's competitive and start to compete more effectively, start to roll up our sleeves and compete across the economic domains, technological domains, military domains, and political domains. So those would be two sort of basic headlines, but ultimately how to ensure that the United States can retain its strengths well into the future and how we can create more positive alignments um, that that will benefit us and benefit our allies and our partners and democracies going forward. The key word I heard there, which resonates with me, is you know, compete, competitive. That was a uh, the language that the Trump administration introduced that perhaps wasn't resident 
in the prior administration's national security strategies. And of course, we're competing primarily against China, others as well. Uh, but, but China figured heavily in your work, no doubt, correct? Yeah, very much so. Um, and, you know, we'll get into this with the, with the new Biden administration strategy because they also uh, recognized um, the, the, that China presents a serious political, economic, military, and technological challenge to the United States because China's chosen to grow its economy and use the interdependence uh, that's grown for the past 15 years uh, between China and the rest of the world to ensure that it's really strong in all those domains. Yeah, it's interesting ways you measure success of a national security strategy, particularly one uh, that was authored in the Trump administration, how there's kind of elements of continuity moving to the Biden administration, two very different presidents, two very different administrations. But we'll get to this in a couple of minutes. China is the common thread and is treated in, in very similar ways, although, as you'll point out, as you've argued elsewhere in the Wall Street Journal, uh, not in the same way. But before we get there, one of the things that really stands out as I reflect upon what you did in the Trump administration, along with H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, at the time the National Security Strategy was released during the Trump administration, was timing. This thing got done early on in the administration. That's important, I think, to strategy. I want you to comment on, on these three elements. Two, priorities. The strategy, at least to me, made it quite clear that we were going to be focusing on state actors. Uh, perhaps they were less of a focus and, and China being chief among them. And the th third piece was clarity. It was, it was quite kind of just written in a fashion that uh, you didn't need a Ph.D., uh, to understand what the Trump administration was getting at. So talk about timing, prioritization, and clarity and when, when strategy. Yeah, um, well, I think, I think timing was important because the idea of strategy, as I mentioned early on, is to articulate a way forward, to identify a set of actions that you're going to do, explain why you want to do them, and then to actually set the foundation for, for moving ahead, right? So those of you uh, listening who are in businesses or work for companies, I imagine that you develop strategies as well, and then over the course of a year or two, actually implement them. But to do that, you need the strategy developed up front. And so it was really important to us and to our whole team, the whole National Security Council team and the White House team to get something done early on in the administration. Uh, so, so we did, we, we um, delivered it in December of uh, 2017. And that was important because that gave us then three years to to implement it, or at least to start implementation or to implement pieces of it, right? Not that nothing ever works as fast as you want in government, but it gave us a fighting chance to at least try to begin implementation. Yeah, I don't know who, who keeps track of when administrations deliver their national security strategy and you know, who was the first to get it done or early in their administration or who was, got done the latest, but... You know, elected the end of January or coming to office in January, I should say, and having the strategy released publicly uh, at the end of that year, that seems to be pretty, pretty darn good timing, especially when you think about what's involved there. And Nadia, maybe you can kind of uh, lift the veil here without speaking out of school, of course, in terms of just the difficulty of getting everyone to sign off and ultimately to buy in to the concepts of a national security strategy. Presumably, the most important player is the President of the United States, and that president uh, has said things during the campaign 
that would be captured in the national security strategy. That makes it, I guess, easier to get buy-in from all the other actors. But this is the bureaucracy. There are huge agencies from State Department to Defense Department to Commerce to Treasury to the White House staff that all want to chop on what you're writing. Tell us a little bit about what's involved and how hard it is to just kind of get that thing through all the wickets. I'll, I'll do that. But first, I'd also like to point out that an important part of this was also a sense of understanding what we wanted, right, as an administration at the time and, and a clear set of ideas. Um, so that was very important, too. And there was fundamental agreement on these ideas, right? I think in this administration, we'll see and we can talk about it, that there are sort of much more competing power centers in this administration in terms of how the world works. So in the previous administration, I mean, there was an agreement that we needed to discuss and reassess uh, globalization, which had actually uh, created some serious problems for the United States, including the loss of key sectors, manufacturing sectors. Uh, there was a strong sense of protecting the homeland and needing to secure our borders. And that was an, an, important, an important aspect of protecting the homeland growing the economy and kind of a consensus about reducing taxes to do that. So there was more of a consensus about what was needed and a sense of while the United States wanted to continue to advance its values around the world and should that there were also fundamental limitations on how much we could do around the world that we needed to navigate that a little bit more effectively because the world had changed. So I think there were some key ideas there that there was fundamental agreement around and that made it easier actually uh, you know, to deliver things on time. But in terms of process, you know, working through any bureaucracy, I mean, it's just, um, it's kind of a, a, you know, it's a delicate process of ensuring that people are heard, bringing in the ideas, uh, but also making sure that uh, everyone knows that there are deadlines and they will be met. Um, I had a fair amount of autonomy so that I could drive the process effectively. I didn't have to worry about, um, you know, getting 25 different people to sign off on any one thing. I knew the most important people that I needed to get to sign off. And that was, you know, the president, his cabinet secretaries, um, th their assistants. And so you sort of need to need to understand the, the power structures in an organization. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we drove a process with clear deadlines and, uh, people respected the deadlines, which, which was very helpful. Um, but so it was a balance between collaborative, uh, but at a certain point, the meetings end, the conversations end, and there's a sense of, okay, we're going to go with this formulation and we're going to move on, right? There's a I just want to note, though, how exceptional that is. That all sounded so neat and organized and everybody playing by the deadlines. And, and I'm, I'm sure it, it didn't feel like that as you were going through it. But Nadia, wouldn't you say that from your experience looking at this, that is a very hard and somewhat unusual thing to accomplish uh, and previous administrations really struggle with that and perhaps the current one as well, given they took much longer to release their national security strategy? Well, I think, you know, I think we, there were a lot of people who were working with me uh, to make this happen. So it was a collaborative approach. But as I said, we also benefited from a sense of approaching bureaucracy in a different way. It wasn't as bureaucratized in the way the National Security Council was set up. Uh, people had authority, as I said, autonomy. And so we just, uh, we prioritized uh, those processes to allow things, you know, to get things done. And, and maybe people were a little bit scared of me. I don't know what to say. <laughs> scary, scary Dr. Shadlow. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> 
<laughs> well, between you and HR McMaster, actually, it's a formidable team. I, no one's going to say no. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the Biden administration and, and their national security strategy. Of course, it took them longer to get one out. Uh, perhaps it's a function of some of those competing power centers which you referenced before. Perhaps, I think, uh, uh, certainly one contributing factor was Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which took place at the beginning of 2022. In February 2022, there was rumors that the Biden administration was going to release their national security strategy. It had it written perhaps just prior to the invasion, and, and I think rightly they, they held off until they could integrate uh, those events and the new reality in Europe uh, and have that reflected in the national security strategy. But for a moment here, Nadia, and then we'll get into your journal piece, what do you think are the examples of continuity between the Trump administration and national security strategy, which are important to highlight? And then what are the most important elements you think uh, that there's departure and change from the Trump administration national security strategy? Well, I think probably the most significant area of continuity um, is the characterization of, of China and of recognizing China as the key um, long-term challenge for the United States. And having said that, <laughs> they also discuss an, another existential threat, which is not China, and so this is part of the contradiction. But ultimately, China is front and center in their strategy. Um, as a key power that the United States needs to focus on and retain its competitive edges over. Um, Russia is also acknowledged as a key competitor. Uh, Russia is referred to as a, as a country that needs to be contained. So while the term great power competition, which was used in the 2017 strategy, is not used, effectively the Biden strategy also speaks of China, Russia, Iran, North Korea as powers that uh, that present some significant challenges to the United States. Um, so I think that that overall is an area of continuity. There's also continuity in terms of um, recognizing the importance of allies and partners. Now, I think I'm sure, um, you know, critics from the administration, the current administration would say, oh, Nadia, that's that's crazy. You know, the Trump administration didn't care about allies and partners, but I would actually dispute that. And I think there was plenty of language in the strategy uh, and a recognition of the importance of allies and partners, um, especially vis-a-vis -vis the, 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 the China competition. Now, granted, the Biden strategy emphasizes allies and partners more in terms of language, right? It's They're mentioned, the phrase allies and partners is, is throughout. I, I didn't count it. But I think there's some elements of continuity there. Um, I think also... Um, there's a discussion of the importance of nuclear weapons in both strategies as, as foundational to deterrence, and that's important. But there, having said that, there's some contradictory language as well, which we can talk about. And I know Roger, you're a you know you're an expert on on nuclear issues as well, so you might have noticed uh, some problems too. Um, there's also uh, you know obviously an interest in expanding economic opportunities that's highlighted. Now the difference is. I would say the Biden administration ha had a different approach to that, right? <laughs> An approach that sort of differentiates maybe Republicans and Democrats and the right mix of economic tools to do that. But nonetheless, it's a key theme in the strategy also. So there are, um, there are you know, plenty of areas of continuity, uh, which is a good thing, but also areas that are, that are quite different as well. The areas of change, let's focus on that for a second. Your piece highlights that, you know, there are, administration is correct in terms of 
identifying China as, quote, the consequential geopolitical challenge. That's fancy speak for saying that's the, you know, pure competitor. That's the, that's the real the country we got to worry most about. But then you highlight, and this is the, uh, the interesting and perhaps provocative argument you made, which is a dangerous contradiction you refer to it as, and that is calling climate the existential threat to the United States and encouraging cooperation with Beijing on that existential threat. Now, do you take us through that argument and, and why it's contradictory to at once look at China as a great geopolitical challenge and then, then at the same time look at China to help us with what they have designated, that's the Biden administration, uh, as climate change being this existential threat? If you're putting climate first and center as a key focus of development assistance, um, as a key aspect of U.S. relationships with other countries, as a key aspect with China, you're going to put other realities secondary. And I think that that ultimately is a problem. So let's think about it. Let's go kind of, you're, you're a PhD, expert, strategist, historian, Soviet Union. We at once, I don't know, uh, cooperated with them or you know, certainly traded with them. At the same time, we were competing with them. Um, or is, isn't it possible to to engage with an adversary on some economic or political or cultural matters and at the same time uh, compete with them on the harder edge of security? So, so kind of sharply put, why would cooperation on climate change undermine uh, or, or, or challenge our ability to effectively compete with them uh, as the, on the geopolitical plane? Yeah. I didn't say not cooperate, but putting climate as the existential threat makes it sound like, and the strategy says, that cooperation really is front and center on this existential threat. So my view is just that we have to be realistic about the serious limitations to that approach. Um, that China has actually you know, increased its carbon emissions over, over the past uh, many years, five, six, seven years. It's continued to build coal-powered uh, plants around the world. Um, our ability right now to actually shift to renewables and shift our economy toward that, if that's what the Biden administration wants, means we're going to become more dependent on China because we don't have the capability now to produce the batteries we need for electrical vehicles. Uh, we don't produce the solar panels we need uh, for other aspects of, of renewables. So my view is just that there are limitations, uh, serious limitations in, in that domain. And that instead, if we actually want, for instance, to work with countries in Africa more effectively, uh, we need to actually change the way we do development assistance and economic development there and putting climate front and center there is not actually, uh, you know, is not actually an approach that's going to get us to quicker outcomes. I had a quote in my op-ed, which I actually liked. I don't know. I don't have it in front of me, Roger, maybe you do, but the quote about uh, the energy minister from Senegal. Um, I don't know if you have it in front of you, but I don't I'm have it in front. No. Give us the, give us the gist of what the Senegal foreign minister said. Well, I, sh I should look, but he basically said, you know, you can't ask us to to get onto an airplane and fly with without wings. <laughs> so right, right, it, right. It was actually a quote taken from a great interview that Daniel Jurgen did um, with 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 uh, the the former energy minister. So, if we're putting 
climate front and center and prioritizing it all around all uh, above all these other relationships, which is what to me the the Biden strategy sounds like, you know, could be wrong, and I'm sure my counterparts um, who who were developing it might disagree with me. Um, but if we're putting that front and center, that means that other priorities are going to be, um, you know, are, are going to be uh, focused on less. Yeah, they're lesser priorities. I mean, it's a great point focusing on the language. And when you deal with a strategy document, it is the language <laughs> that you have to contend with. Right. There's there's the action that follows and you can be evaluated to what extent the actions are reflective of the strategy or depart from it. But you have to pay attention to the language. That's what the documents uh, there to do. And it's encouraging those inside and outside of government to respond accordingly. I mean, there's nothing else in the national security strategy that is given this status of existential an existential uh, threat other than climate change. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. And keep in mind that climate is not a sentient thinking actor, right? I've made this point uh, before in, in some of my other writing. That's a fancy word, sentient thinking actor. Climate is not China. It doesn't adapt to your strategies, right? It doesn't have leaders. It doesn't have a military. It doesn't have um, individuals who are who are, who are who are acting. Climate, it, climate, it is 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 a law is a concept it's a series of events that are happening but in order to make progress on it you need to look back at the state level and look at what's happening in individual countries in individual regions of the world have different sets of solutions um climate itself uh you don't it doesn't develop a counter strategy to you let, right let, let, strategy let is the art of having an opponent a thinking acting opponent certainly the national security strategy i think fits fit, fits that uh, in terms of right, at, right. right at, at the level of national security strategy, but wait, wait. even corporations, right? Corporations have strategies generally because they're trying to gain market share. Right? Correct, right? So they're looking at their competitors as well, and, and so strategy is perhaps best applied and used, or can be most effective when you're when you have your competitor or adversary. But just take it on, kind of head on, which is. Climate change is a very important policy area. Obviously, there's, there's partisan differences on how to deal with it, if it should be dealt with, how best should be dealt with it. But take on the appropriateness, uh, the relevance of climate being in a national security strategy as opposed to just the priorities of any administration uh, that are addressed outside the bounds, outside the parameters of national security strategy. Cause I think this is something that um, folks will just assume, okay, well, it's a Biden administration priority. Of course, climate is a, is a big piece of what Democrats uh, focus on and seek to advance certainly at the federal level uh, and government got it. That's not surprising, but is it, should it be surprising to us, Nadia, that it figures so heavily in a national security strategy? Well, I don't think it should be surprising in, you know, in, um, I mean, it, it's a key plat, it's been a key platform in democratic administrations for a long, long time. Climate is seen as a global threat and as a threat that will ultimately down the line um, undermine U.S. interests. I mean, that's the argument of this current strategy. So whatever one thinks about climate, my view is still that even if you see climate as an existential threat, 
characterizing it as a global threat which without attributing it to specific actors and countries and local level solutions or state level solutions regional solutions i think will make it a lot harder to achieve the improvements um, that this administration would like to see so climate is characterized as a global threat and the point i make in my op-ed is that particular countries and particular regions of the world will need solutions um, that are that are lo more local to them. Well, you said something at the outset where, you know, you think this administration has competing power centers and perhaps some of those power, power centers prevailed more on getting recognition of their priorities in this Biden national security strategy than perhaps others. If I think about Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor of the Biden administration, uh, where he's come out and spent his time Obviously, he responds to events, uh, as it should be for a national security advisor, but it hasn't been a focus on climate change for the most part. There's been some, but if you look at the action, what's happening inside the national security staff, the National Security Council, it's far more about these other things from China to Russia, uh, you know, harder traditional national security challenges. My question is this, Nadia, how much is this John Kerry, former Secretary of State, Senator, now the so-called you know climate czar for the Biden administration, saying this national security strategy needs to prioritize, elevate to the exclusion of everything else, climate change? I think Clearly, there's a lot of John Kerry in this document. But having said that, I would like to call out in a positive way um, the work of, you know, th there are plenty of others in, in the Biden administration who do have a clear eye view of China, uh, right? And actually, a lot of the actions of the administration have been really tough, right? The past few weeks, uh, some of the export controls that we're seeing now yes. related to the semiconductor sector are really unparalleled. They're, they're, we haven't done that in the past. Um, really strong and, and creating, um, for, for those who agree, people are happy. For those who disagree, they're unhappy. So there have been a lot of really strong uh, and, and tough steps taken. So I think you you do see a clear, um, a clear coalition of people in the administration um, that really wanted to focus in a different way on, on China. So in the end, uh, they sort of came out with a document that's almost too, too it's almost, um, I wouldn't say two different documents, but you could probably almost neatly divide it into who, who said what and who wanted what in it. And we're certainly seeing those who advocated for the strong language vis-a-vis -vis China playing out in terms of action. Let's, let's move to the China piece and the Biden administration on China. And here I want to reference an essay you wrote for the Reagan Institute as part of our Reagan Institute strategy group. You, you participate in that. We're grateful for it. And you talk about strategic decoupling with China. Why don't you explain what you mean by strategic decoupling, this concept? And yes, you just referenced recent sanctions. Uh, the U.S. Uh, has applied through our Commerce Department on U.S. companies that do tooling for semiconductors, for example, or U.S. persons that work for semiconductor, Chinese semiconductor companies in China. That, I think, would all go towards what you advocate for, which is strategic decoupling. Go ahead and tell us what that's about and how you see it playing out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to step back and 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 note that decoupling is actually a concept developed by China and by the CCP. Right? Decoupling is the idea that you develop your own 
supply chains in critical industries, whether it's uh, microelectronics, whether it's pharmaceuticals, uh, critical minerals, batteries, and you develop those supply chains at home using the interdependence of globalization, um, using the efficiencies of globalization to drive manufacturing plants to your country so that over time you're less dependent on the rest of the world. Decoupling is a concept that emerged from the CCP, made in China 2025, and other plans that the CCP has articulated, have spoken about, um, and there's plenty of information about that. So we are now, and as as we're now um, in, in the situation of deciding um, if we want to accelerate that decoupling essentially, and why we, why we might want to do that, uh, partly to ensure that we're not vulnerable to the cutoff of key components, right? Of microchips, uh, of pharmaceutical um, supplies, right? Which we saw during COVID. So COVID sort of, as this is well known, almost trite to say, COVID made people recognize, gee, we're dependent on a lot of things from other countries, including competitor countries, adversary countries. And we want to rethink our supply chains, uh, reshift our supply chains, reshore some of them, which means bring them back to the United States, or what's been called um, friend shoring, right? I think Janet Yellen, uh, Gina Raimondo, others have spoken about the importance of, of putting certain supply chains in Europe, in other parts of Asia. So that's what sort of the what that's what we're facing today, and that's what really strategic decoupling means. Yeah, and the accelerate it, whether we have that choice, I tend to think of it as perhaps not accelerating, but we are picking our spots in response to where they're seeking to decouple. Because, of course, they decouple in places which uh, advantage them and disadvantage us. And we ought to be in the position where if we are decoupling, we're doing it in a fashion that advantages us and hope, you know, would disadvantage them, right? And, and they're not always the same thing. Although, interestingly... Now, this is where I'd like to get your reaction. It seems to be that Xi has accelerated decoupling more than any kind of policy decisions we've made inside Washington, from social media companies uh, to other technologies where he's, even in some respects, seems to be disadvantaging uh, those goals, those lofty goals of China because of other domestic uh, considerations that Xi's taken into account that are not purely economic. Do you see that happening, the trend now that we talk about decoupling, but it's actually uh, the Chinese doing it for us? Yeah, and that was, you know, what I what I um, sort of tried to make that point about essentially this is a decision made um, by the CCP to reduce its vulnerabilities on the West. Now, we've come to a similar Kind of way of thinking that we want to also reduce our vulnerabilities on other countries um, in key critical sectors. Uh, but I think another element that you're seeing there, and we've seen this with the latest party Congress, is that um, Xi is interested in consolidating his power and the power of the CCP. So those two, those two um, aspects, I think, are driving what we're seeing today in China: a desire to consolidate his power, which he seems to have successfully done with this last party Congress, and a desire to reduce his vulnerabilities and China's vulnerabilities uh, writ large in key critical sectors. One of the things you put in the national security strategy of 2017, which seems to is another example where there's continuity and recognition that this is a big idea that there's consensus around that 
innovation that's required for national security and, frankly, for the economic prosperity this country has enjoyed since the Second World War uh, requires something that's called like innovation base, which is the ability to have uh, a set of institutions, private sector, public sector, that are cultivating innovation. And that contributes, again, to economic prosperity and our national security. The reality is, is that perhaps a generation, two generations ago, government was a primary driver of that innovation through government funding and government institutions and recognition that now these things are happening outside of government and government doesn't control or own. And we need to cultivate this innovation base. How are we doing on that score, Nadia? Uh, and it seems to be a concept that uh, many who look at China and think about our security and economic strength really focus on. Well, I think that the record that we're sort of mixed, I would say, I'm not sure if I'd give us a, a C, but I'm not <laughs> sure I'd give, yeah, maybe a C, maybe I'm being a little bit pessimistic today, but essentially the idea of a national security innovation base, it's not my idea. It's, it's, it's built on, you know, many, many people writing about the sources of innovation and the 2017 strategy tried to emphasize two of those. One was the link between manufacturing and innovation, uh, which essentially means that if you have a plant and you're manufacturing at that facility, you actually get a lot of benefits of innovation as well. You're walking around, you're fixing things, you're improving things at the plant, and that that creates a certain ecosystem of innovation that helps you to innovate if you manufacture. So these are ideas that you know I was reading uh, Professor Willie Shi from Harvard Business School, others who've written about this for many years. Um, that's an important part of our national security innovation base. The second element is recognizing the importance of, of technology to national security. Now, again, these are ideas that, um, you know, everyone uh, the, the, in the in the Obama administration, um, uh, former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, who, who sadly just passed away this past week, and his deputy, Bob Work, they really worked hard uh, to, to explain to the broader public the importance of getting technology in from the private sector as a key component of America's, you know, innovative uh, uh, defense um, defense base. So the national security innovation base is a is, is a combination of that. It's the idea that we need to understand the drivers of innovation and do better as a country uh, to protect those drivers and support them. You gave us a C. What would you like to see? S E E. That would go take us from uh, <laughs> Professor Shadow giving us a C to maybe a B, or heaven forbid, even approaching an A. Well, we have to move much, much faster, right? We need a regulatory environment which allows you to actually build manufacturing facilities, right? So uh, if you can't build manufacturing facilities, you can't actually reshore and you can't actually get the benefits of innovation. Uh, we need a, a climate in which government can actually cooperate with the private sector in a timely way. And we know that this is a persistent and consistent problem, a serious problem. And, and another component of this is for 15 years at least, uh, we've been discussing problems with STEM, with our STEM education system. Uh, if you go back and look at President Obama's statements from 15, from around 2009 or earlier, um, the statements he made then are exactly the same as what we're making today. So we are not moving. And in fact, I think the most recent reports came out last week or two weeks within the past two weeks 
about how poorly we're still doing a, as a nation in that domain. So we need to figure that out. We 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 know there are experts out there who know what the problem is. We can't just keep talking about the problem. We have to try um, developing more innovative solutions at the state level, right? STEM is not gonna be fixed at the federal level. It happens in schools, which are in local school districts and which are at the state level. So I think those three areas, I mean, we're just moving really, really slowly. And um, you know, I'd like to be more optimistic maybe next year, but so far. All right, we still, we get the greatest C, we'll see how we do on those areas. And one thing that I think is interesting is the way industrial policy has perhaps incented the private sector to get more involved. One, one area that's gotten a lot of attention, the CHIPS Act and uh, those companies, be it Intel, Global Foundries, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, Samsung, they've all seemed to be motivated because they got on this signal that the U.S. government is serious about the United States once again having manufacturing prowess or at least capacity for high-end semiconductors. What's the score on that? Are you pleased with what you see, what's going on in Arizona, Texas, Ohio, or is it overstated? It's just too early to tell. I mean, I think there are positive signs about the recognition of this, um, but it's just too early to tell. We need to evaluate where things are in the spring. You know, what contracts have been signed, what what facilities are starting to be built, um, the the balance. So there, there are a lot of unknowns out there, but there's a huge bureaucracy associated with this as well. So we need to ho hopefully um, see, uh, hopefully things will be done in, in a different way. We can't wait 10 years for the outcomes, right? For the outcomes. Well, I mean, particularly in that sector that, that right. they'll, they'll, they'll move on multiple generations. I mean, right. one of the interesting things that I've observed, well, uh, you can decide whether it's interesting, but what I've observed is, you know, the Congress and the uh, appropriated, authorized and appropriated funds for this CHIPS Act, a lot of money, but it's certainly not the type of money that will sustain innovation in the semiconductor space, which is so capital intensive, but it seemed to get some of these companies off, you know, the, the, the fence here that they decide to come in almost that industrial policy is not only valuable from the standpoint of the dollars that are going in, but simply the signal from, from government that they want to be supportive of this. Uh, are you seeing it the same way or, or again, you're, you're, you, you're waiting for the evidence that they've uh, not only broken ground, but built something and they're producing. I'm going to, I'm going to stick to my wait and see, which, you know, is appropriate for in a Reagan form event, right? The equivalent of trust, but verify. Uh, so I'm going to wait and see. President Reagan would probably be proud of me, you know. <laughs> you just, you just threw trust, but verify at us on the Reaganism podcast. Well done. Extra points for you. In a moment, we'll, we'll go to our uh, lightning. You to be right. I want, you know, I want you to be right, Roger. I want it to go all in the right direction. Um, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to wait and see a little bit. I can't argue with trust, uh, but verify. Before we go to our lightning round, do you want to get uh, your your thoughts on the midterms and kind of how you see Republicans approaching national security uh, in the next Congress and as we approach uh, a presidential race in, in 2024? Nadia, do you think national security and foreign policy will figure prominently uh, amongst presidential hopefuls after this midterm elections, obviously inflation, crime are, are the big issues that we see are impacting races, particularly for Republican candidates. Uh, but some of the things we discussed 
uh, you know, very much, I think, uh, could push into the political discussion. What's your view? Um, I think it will. I mean, look, I'm not an economist, but some of the most um, you know dramatic inflationary pressures over the past year have been due to international, due to geopolitical forces, right? So, uh, you know, there, there's a direct link between what we're seeing uh, and external forces, um, whether it's supply chain issues, whether it's the war in Europe, Russia's war against Ukraine. I mean, these are external geopolitical factors. So there's a big link. I think we're going to see, I mean, most Republicans um, out there share the view on, on China. And you can't, you know, you can't separate that from having an international role in the world, a presence in the world, right? Um, these uh, these forces are all interconnected. But I think we'll see arguments about, to some degree, industrial policy and the nature of it. We will see arguments about military budgets and what to spend the money on. Uh, we will see uh, discussions and, and disagreements about um, allies and partners. We'll see addition, additional pressure on burden sharing. So we'll see some of these same issues. Um, but, but that's just to say that I think international issues will remain important. We're with Dr. Nadia Shadlow of the Hudson Institute and former Deputy National Security Advisor, author of the Trump Administration's 2017 National Security Strategy, getting her thoughts on the Biden Administration National Security Strategy. Let's move now to our lightning round where we ask our guests to share their favorite Reagan quote, speech, or book. Nadia, I believe you have a book and speech you want to share with us. Okay. Well, I do have a book, but I'm, I'm, uh, it's a book that's actually just out, just published uh, by a, a friend of mine named William Inboden at the University of Texas, and it's called The Peacemaker. And it's really the first comprehensive history of Reagan's foreign policy, uh, which I was surprised to hear, but, but it's true. So there are lots of biographies about President Reagan, lots of books about his Cold War strategy, but this is a comprehensive look at his foreign policy. Um, it's also, it goes into discussions about some of the key people in his administration, Weinberger, Kirkpatrick, uh, Casey, and, and gets into some of their disagreements. Um, imagine that, an administration filled with people who disagree. Um, so I think I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into it. Um, I just received it. I've read excerpts of it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, this is not a paid advertisement for it, but I do think it's going to be on my Christmas list. So <laughs> we love we we love talking about Will Imboden's work and uh, coming soon to a Reaganism podcast near you. We'll have Will on here uh, and probably within the next uh, three or four episodes. Great book. Uh, good teaser speech. What do you got? Well, I was looking back a little bit and there was a speech from um, May of 1985, which is about 40 years after the end of World War II. And President Reagan had gone to the European Parliament to Strasbourg uh, to speak to Europeans. And it's just one of those great Reagan speeches where he uh, you know, is incredibly eloquent. He speaks about the banality of evil, which was H Hannah Arendt's phrase, um, but he's applying it looking back on, on World War II. Uh, little man who did the terrible deeds, he said, right? And it makes you think about what's happening in Europe today, um, Russia and Ukraine. Um, he speaks about the early attempts to placate the totalitarians, to be wary of appeasement. But he also was very positive, and he also spoke about the commonness, the commonness of virtue, which I think was really a, a, a great phrase. Common men and women 
who somehow dug greatness from within their souls. That's just a beautiful line, right? So we always had a way of, of also uplifting and finding the best in human nature. Um, and I think overall, you know, it's just, it's a great speech to go back to. In the end, he reminds us not to question that the ideals and philosophies of the West are um, are the best ones. They're, they're the ideals and philosophies uh, that allow for liberty, individual freedom, human rights, and, and all of those things that people everywhere in the world aspire to. So it's a, it's a good speech, not as well known as the others, but I recommend it. Two great contributions to our lightning round. Two firsts, I must add. Dr. Nadia Shadler, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Roger. A pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.